Hello, this is Laurie Jacobson, Hollywood author with all the scoop on Hollywood mysteries, scandals, ghosts, and the Beatles at Shea Stadium. And I'm the next guest on On Screen and Beyond. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. We are back for another edition of On Screen and Beyond. This is episode 623 of the show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with a guest from the movie, TV, or music industry. This week on On Screen and Beyond, we are going to be talking with a writer, producer, author, and she was the co-producer of the Mary Tyler Moore 20th anniversary show back in 1991 and uh, she also produced some other things like the Suzanne Summer show and uh, she's written several books and, and they're great books her latest book that's out is called Top of the Mountain the Beatles at Shea Stadium 1965 so Lori Jacobson is going to be coming to on screen and beyond in just a few minutes so I hope you're going to stick around for that it's going to be a fascinating interview and uh, we'll have a lot of fun with that so that's coming up in a few minutes right here on on screen and beyond also want to remind you on May 26th through the 28th at the Orinda Theater in Orinda, California. There's going to be Behind the Golden Curtain. Now, this is a tribute to the Golden Girls TV show, and it's a convention, and there's going to be all kinds of guests there who are associated with the show, the Golden Girls, uh, the writers, directors, producers, and people who guest starred on episodes of the Golden Girls. And I'll be giving you more information on who those people are in future episodes here of On Screen and Beyond. Uh, They're also going to have panel discussions and trivia and lectures and parties and a whole lot more. Be sure to check that out on May 26th to the 28th at the Orinda Theater in Orinda, California. And I think if you go to on, uh, not on screen and beyond, but uh, com. You, uh, they may have information up on it already. I'm not sure, but you can check that out and uh, see what uh, they have there. So uh, be sure to check that out. And uh, what do you say? It's time to get into Remake Madness right here on On Screen and Beyond. Remake Madness, well, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem brings back sewer dwellers once more, and this time with Seth Rogen, and it uh, hits the theaters on August 4th. And you can look for Jake Gyllenhaal to star in a remake of Roadhouse. Now, that's the 1989 film which starred Patrick Swayze. And that's it for Remake Madness. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies? Upcoming new movies, Matt Damon and Casey Affleck have joined forces once again, and they will star in The Instigators for an Apple original film. Nicholas Cage will star in a horror thriller called The Long Legs, and Blair Underwood has also signed on. And Mila Kunis and Michael Keaton are going to be joining uh, their forces to star in a comedy called Goodrich, and the filming starts next month. And that's it for upcoming new movies. Next and on screen and beyond, we're going to take a peek at what's coming away as far as sequels. <laughs> 
Sequels. March 24th, John Wick Chapter 4 finally jumps into theaters. And Sam Raimi says a sequel to Drag Me to Hell is possible. The team is trying to come up with a story that would work. That's what he says. And October 4th, 2024, that's the current release date of Joker Folly Adieu. All right, and that's it for sequels. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way as far as movies and TV on DVD? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Movies and TV on DVD, Cliffhanger with Sylvester Stallone, which uh, they are going to be making a remake, or they're working on it anyways. Uh, It is celebrating its 30th anniversary on May 30th with a 4K Ultra HD limited edition steelbook release. And on May 2nd, Baby Ruby, a psychological thriller, will be hitting DVD and on demand. April 18th, we got a couple of things coming your way. You can get Marlowe with Liam Neeson. Now, this is Liam's 100th film, and uh, it's in theaters right now. It's going to be available on Blu-ray and DVD. And Magic Mike's Last Dance will be strolling on to Blu-ray and DVD on April 18th. That's it for movies and TV on DVD. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, it's TV and Entertainment Time. TV and entertainment time. Well, Disney CEO Bob Iger, he says that every it's, it's what everybody's been saying, that Disney theme parks are getting too expensive. Well, duh. <laughs> we'll see what he does about it, if anything. And Kevin Costner will host and uh, be executive producer to a show for the History Channel. And it's a documentary-style show. And uh, he is going to be working on that. The working title is called Kevin Costner's The West. And sadly, in uh, passings, we've had Robert Blake this past week from Beretta in the 70s. He passed away at 89. And Bert I. Gordon. Now, he was uh, giving us all kinds of sci-fi movies back in the 50s and early 60s. Uh, he has passed at the age of 100. Now, Bert I. Gordon was a guest here at On Screen and Beyond, so if you want to learn more about him, you can hear Bert talk about his career on episode 207 of On Screen and Beyond. So be sure to check that out. And that's it for TV and Entertainment Time. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, we are going to be talking with Lori Jacobson. She's a writer, producer, historian. She knows all kinds of things about Hollywood, and, and, and she has uh, you know, been a producer on TV shows. And her latest book out is Top of the Mountain, The Beatles at Shea Stadium, 1965. Laurie Jacobson next, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Today on On Screen and Beyond, our guest is a writer, producer, historian, 
author, and she wrote and co-produced Mary Tyler Moore, the 20th anniversary show, as well as co-producing the TV special Funny Women of Television. And she has written several books, including her latest, Top of the Mountain, The Beatles at Shea Stadium, 1965. It's Laurie Jacobson. Laurie, welcome to On Screen and Beyond. Well, thanks. Happy to be here. Now, Laurie, the Beatles. I mean, what what can I say? I mean, I I am a big fan, so, you know, I I needed to get you on here because of the Beatles. (laughs) And, and, you know, so much more you've done, too. But, boy, the Beatles really, you know, (laughs) I see that and it's like, whoa, that's I got to talk about that. Well, you know, I can't believe I got to write a book about the Beatles. After all these years of the Beatles being around, I would have thought that everything had been said at least once before. But I was incredibly fortunate to uh, come across the details of a particular story that hadn't been told. Really? Wow. Um, I I was friendly with a gentleman who was best friends with a guy named Sid Bernstein. Mm-hmm. And Sid ended up uh, as the promoter of the Shea Stadium concert, 1965. That is the first rock and roll concert ever in a baseball stadium. And, of course, after that, all we saw were baseball stadiums. It changed rock and roll forever. And it really, it just changed everything. Definitely. Um, Never before had anyone played for 56,000 people. Not Elvis, not Sinatra, nobody. Mm -hmm. And technology woke up the next morning and said, boy, did we screw up. No, nobody could see them. Nobody could hear them. Uh, and yet four years later was Woodstock. So they had a, a heap of catching up to do, which they did mm-hmm. uh, over the next several years. Uh, Madison Avenue woke up the next morning and said, whoa, there's a whole group of people we're only selling pimple cream to, and we could be selling so much more to them. So, I mean, and the kids themselves, you know, looked around and saw 56,000 other people like them up to then you're you're listening you know with 10 people around your parents hi-fi you know to an album and now you realize there are thousands and thousands of people like me that are interested in what I'm interested in so many of the people that I interviewed who were there that day said it was utterly life changing mm-hmm. for them and some of the people who were there that day were like a 16 year old Meryl Streep is in the audience a 9 year old Whoopi Goldberg 14 year old Steve Van Zant Two future Beatle wives um, were were there. And come on, what are the odds of that? Mm-hmm. And one of them, Barbara Bach, who is married to Ringo, oh, yes. she, she brought her little sister. That's the only reason Barbara was there. She was not a Beatle fan, <laughs> but her little sister was. And her little sister's future husband was there, Joe Walsh of the Eagles, So, you know, the more I delved into it, the more amazing the story was. 
and uh, and I just had a ball re immersing myself in Beatlemania. Yeah. Now, Lori, this is a dumb question, but I I, I know the answer to it. But uh, (laughs) were you a Beatles fan? Yes, <laughs> huge, huge Beatlemaniac. All right, were, were you a John, Paul, George, or Ringo fan? Well, you know, it's changed over the years, but uh, at the onset of Beatlemania, I was Paul all the way. Mm-hmm. And um, I suppose, and as I got older uh, and more um, rebellious, it was definitely John. Mm-hmm. And then as I got older still uh, and became more spiritual, it was George. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, and I love Ringo. Don't get me wrong. Oh, He's no. amazing. I... But uh, but the other three kind of led me through, through my life here. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, all four are incredibly talented people. Um, and, you know, they – the four of them together made music that you know will never be done again. Yes, and you know, and just and with this particular concert, um, it could never happen this way again. Yeah, you know that the the, the simplicity of the time uh, of the mid sixties uh, and some beyond was just um, such. A, it was such a lovely and different time mm-hmm. and you know the the Beatlemania that I you know the gift for me of writing this book was that I rediscovered my love and joy of the Beatles you know every time I'd hear an old Beatles song I oh god I remember where I was when I first heard that mm-hmm. and it makes me feel great to hear it again but I you know I have lost the original drive and enthusiasm that I had as a kid and the people that I spoke to that were at the concert they still had it they remembered you know they remembered every single detail of being there, what they wore, how they got there, how they got their tickets, um, what happened when they took the stage, just every moment. And so through them, I I was able to find my way back to that original enthusiasm. And it's something I don't ever want to lose again. Yeah. Yeah. It it just kind of gets buried under life. Yeah. I, I, I can't imagine, you know, like you say, the technology wasn't there really for them to play a concert there, but the, the people couldn't hear them and they couldn't hear the, you know, themselves while they were playing. And, and it, it just seems like it was like, you know, who thought of this and didn't really plan on doing it right, you know? Well, they thought, you know, they, they used what they had right. at the time. Um and they, you know, they had um, dozens of uh, these long speakers set up in front of the stage, aimed out at the at the crowd. And th- there was a documentary shot that night during the concert. And to be safe, they had taped secondary microphones to the microphones that the Beatles were singing into. Mm -hmm. So they would 
capture everything. But even that didn't work. And yes, the Beatles couldn't even hear themselves. Ringo said the only way he... He knew what they were playing was by watching how their butts moved. <laughs> I've seen that. <laughs> he had that down. So, um, you know, and after a while, you know, John would come to the mic to introduce the song and he would just speak nonsense words. He just knew it doesn't matter what I say. They mm-hmm. can't hear me, you know, because the way Shay was built, um, you know, it was re- really like an amphitheater, and the back end of Shea was open so that all of the n- noise coming from the, all of the screaming coming from the audience just barreled right down onto the stage. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> um, I mean, there were people who suffered permanent hearing loss that were on the field working the uh, the documentary and security you can see uh in the movie um policemen grabbing their ears the moment the beatles come out i mean it was just you know i think paul said it was like standing next to a jet engine and then there were all kinds of people i interviewed that uh had other descriptions of um of what the sound was like but that's the first thing everybody talked about was mm-hmm. the screaming which was just overwhelming and then the, also the crowd was throwing things um but they they didn't get further than you know the front area seats so right. the people sitting down below were just pelted with <laughs> lipsticks and um, dolls that people had made and just all all kinds of junk flying through the air. Wow. (laughs) I know. It was just insane. Oh, yeah. It was absolutely insane. Crazy. Oh, wow. So how'd you come up? Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say other people that were there, uh, Mick and Keith were there. Um, Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Alan Klein, sort of an infamous uh, Mm -hmm. manager, (laughs) yes, infamous in the Beatles, uh, in in rock and roll history. He managed a lot of people, and um, and many say stole a lot of money from them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, he was rather nefarious. Well, he uh, he had just signed the Stones. And his biggest client at that time was Bobby Vinton. So he wanted the Beatles in his stable. And he uh, took a yacht, rented a yacht, and sailed around Manhattan Island with Mick and Keith and Bobby Vinton and then a bunch of other people in his party. And then they sailed to Shea Stadium and parked the yacht and went in you know, went into the dressing rooms and there Sid Bernstein, the promoter of the concert was, and he had booked the stones uh, a number of times already in New York. And Mick approached uh, Sid and said, gee, do you think we'll ever be able to play a stadium one day? Sid (laughs) Sid told him in a couple of years, I think you might get there. Yeah. So, you know, and Sid had the Rascals there. He had just signed the Rascals, and they were just, you know, I spoke to Felix, and he was just 
blown away to this day, just mm-hmm. blown away by well, – he said, I, I for what? For once, we felt we're really in show business, you know, <laughs> seeing that, see, seeing that and being there for that. Yeah. So, in fact, it, Felix, you know, Felix list- was on last last week on my show. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah. Oh, how fabulous. Yeah. He's great, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's doing good, too. He's still still going strong. Yay. Yeah, he's he's amazing guy. I always ask, how do you come up with the title? So how did you get Top of the Mountain? Oh, um, well, years later, after Shay, John Lennon was out with Sid Bernstein. They went to a reggae concert, and uh, they were reminiscing, of course, about Shea Stadium, and John turned to him and said, I saw the top of the mountain on that unforgettable night. And I thought, and it truly, it truly, truly was the top of the mountain for their career, for Beatlemania. I mean, besides the impact that Shay had on rock and roll history and on the Beatles, within the, the following year, John had his infamous uh, statement, we're more popular than Jesus now. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's—I mean—suddenly people were burning Beatle albums, and radio stations refused to play them. And they played Shay a year later and couldn't even sell it out. Oh, wow! Whereas you know, the year before they it was oversold, and they had to return thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah. But people, you know, they took it out of context. What he oh, yeah. what, what he meant. I mean, you know, he didn't mean they were better or anything like that. You know, and it it just it's just the way the media turns around and you know they'll just direct it in the wrong way. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I mean, if you compare it to the internet now, and someone says, you know, the words I say, you know, mm-hmm. reach more people than Jesus's words. You right. know, it, it was something similar to in meaning to right. that, which would be true because, you know, never before has communication spread so wide. Mm-hmm. But, um, and that's basically what he meant. But, yeah, it was taken out of context. It was said at home to uh, someone who was in the media, but someone he John thought he was talking to privately. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, she she ran with that ball and did a lot of damage. So, you know, but that makes, but that does make Shay the, the top of the mountain for their career. Mm -hmm. It was, it was just amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But you know, with Shea stadium, uh, you know, like you say, it was the first time that was done and not too many years after that, they stopped doing those things because it must have been so taxing on them to do that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, 66 was their last tour. So they only toured for one more year. Wow. Um, and as, as Ringo said, people came to see us. They didn't come to hear us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that point, the Beatles, especially John and Paul, their their songwriting was getting more complicated. It was, you know, they were moving away from 
I want to hold your hand. And, you know, by 67, they, you had uh, Sergeant Peppers, mm-hmm. which would have been extremely difficult to do live. Yeah. Uh, and, and they just wanted to spend more time in the studio and grow. Uh, they were having, I guess, a major growth spurt. So, and they wanted people to hear the music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, they had to be locked in their rooms and they couldn't, it wasn't like they could ever see the places they went to. Right. You know, here I'm thinking, gosh, they toured Europe several times. They must have gained some sophistication. No. You know, in Europe, they could go out a little bit more to clubs at night. But, you know, in the States, they couldn't move out of their hotel. Their hotel was surrounded by thousands and thousands of people. And, you know, it's amazing that here we are, you know, getting almost 60 years since that that's the famous time that they were at this at the stadium. And Paul is still out there doing shows two, two and a half hours long. And it's it's it's, it's incredible. Yes, Paul and Ringo and mm-hmm. Mick and Keith and uh felix he's still playing you know it's a really unique um generation oh yeah Yeah. and and they all started out thinking you know we'll do this for a couple of years and um and when it goes away as it inevitably will you know i'll I'll do something else Mm mm-hmm yeah. Um. I in I spoke to Steve Boone, who from the Love and Spoonful. Yes. Th- they were at Shea sixty six, um. But he was just talking about the Beatles being being the first to um, write their own music. Um. It was it was the he he was speaking about the end of the era of really the fifties where you went to the Brill Building in New York, which was full of songwriters, and you'd say, I want a song about a, a boy meeting a girl and losing the girl and then getting her back in the end. Oh, well, that's in room 302. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, the guy in room 302 has a song just for you. And you would take your artist up there and you would hear the song, and the artist would record it, and that would be that. And yeah. the artist wouldn't really have a lot of input into it or m- make it his own. Um, it was a f- it was very formulaic. Yeah. And uh, the Beatles changed all of that when they wrote and uh, when they wrote their own music. Um, and uh, so it was, it's, it was an amazing time. Oh yeah, no doubt about it. And it's he's like you say he's still both. Paul, Ringo, they're both still coming out with more music, new music, you know? Yeah, and, you know, did you know that um, they're both playing on the New Stones album? I heard that, and I also heard that, uh, at least Paul, I don't know about Ringo, is going to be doing a duet with uh, Dolly Parton on her album? Oh, really? Oh, that's so great. Yeah, Do- Dolly Parton, I heard, was coming out with a, a rock and roll album because she's never had an official rock and roll album, and she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and all that. And uh, But uh, she is doing an album, and I think Mick, I, I, 
I don't have the information in front of me, so I don't remember, but there were several big, you know, artists from that time period that uh, she's going to be doing duets with. So that's, that could be an interesting album. Oh, that's brilliant. Yes, Dolly Parton duets, of course. We're, that should have happened a long time ago, but I'm really thrilled that it's happening now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like you say, with the Stones, and it's, it's just, just incredible that they're still going so strong at this time. Yeah, it really is. And now my favorite part of the story has to do with um, Sid Bernstein and how this whole thing came to be. Um, to show the simplicity of the time, um, Sid, you know, Sid Bernstein is the guy who discovered the Beatles in Amer- in America. Everybody thinks that was Ed Sullivan, mm-hmm. but Ed Sullivan jumped on Sid's bandwagon. Sid was taking a class. Uh, he believed in. Uh, always uh, doing something to improve yourself. So he was taking a class, and the homework assignment was to read newspapers from other countries. And he could only read English, so he read the British papers. And, of course, he turned right to the entertainment section, and he kept seeing these little blurbs about a group called the Beatles playing in um, smaller towns uh, in in the UK and in Germany, and the word pandemonium was always attached to the review. So he, you know, began following them and decided to that he must bring them over to the United States. So he he reached out to Brian Epstein and actually, you know, basically said, "Can you come out to play?" <laughs> And and Brian's mother answered the phone and said, just a minute, I'll get him. America's <laughs> calling. You know, Brian had hoped for months and months. He had been trying to attract someone in, in America um, to to this group that he managed, but no one uh, no one responded. Here was the first call. This guy wanted to bring them over to play Carnegie Hall. Um, and he said, but we're not even being played in America. And he said, I'll, I'll set it far enough ahead that people will know who you are. And during that time, Ed Sullivan and his wife are traveling. They land uh, at Heathrow in the U.K. on a day when the Beatles are coming back to the U.K. And there's hundreds of screaming girls at the airport and Ed inquired about it, found out that Sid was bringing them to to the U.S., and asked Sid, who booked people on the Sullivan Show all the time. He called Sid and said, would you mind if they appeared on my show the same weekend you're bringing them to the States? And he said, no, that that's perfect. That'll guarantee me a sellout show. Right. <laughs> so everyone associates the Beatles' introduction to the U.S. with Ed Sullivan, but it was all Sid. Wow. So with that happening, uh, Sid then becomes the conduit for the British invasion. All, all the British groups are calling Sid the Animals, the Stones, Herman's Hermits, the Dave Clark Five, yeah. anybody who wanted to come over to the U.S. And Sid is booking them on a show called Hullabaloo. Mm-hmm. 
a weekly show um, that uh, featured rock and rollers. And um, and he's really happening, and he's delighted. But he ends up booking the animals in uh, in New York for five nights in a row, and that was a big mistake because the Beatles could play five nights in a row and fill up the theater, but the, the, the animals filled up the theater for two nights, and the last three were empty, and he lost a lot of money. Oh, and he had just had a child, and uh, his and he 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 was in a terrible way. His wife was furious. He didn't know what he was going to do. So he's out walking one day and eating. He was always eating. He was quite a large guy. Uh, he knew where the best music and the best food in New York was. Um, and he thought, well, I know who do I who do I know the biggest group in entertainment in the world I have a great relationship with. What's the biggest place I could book them into? And he thought Madison Square Garden isn't big enough. I want bigger. And he settled on Shea Stadium. And when he told Brian about it, Brian said, no way. You know, the Beatles at that point were still getting mixed reviews from older people mm -hmm. in the U.S. They're a passing fad. Next year they'll be bald <laughs> and you'll forget all about them. And and, uh, and, and Brian said, my, my boys don't play to empty seats mm -hmm. or, or the naysayers will, will point and say, see, I told you. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I can see and, that. So Sid said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you $10 for every empty seat in Shea Stadium. That's how sure I am that I can fill it. Hmm. Wow. And so Brian said, all right, I'll take that deal. I want uh, a guarantee of $100,000, which was enormous. Yeah, for that time, yeah. Enormous. And... um I want half of it in three months, and you can't advertise the concert until you give me 50 grand. Hmm. And he said, well, how am I going to raise that kind of money if I can't advertise it? And Brian said, well, I didn't say you couldn't talk about it. <laughs> so here's my favorite part. <laughs> Sid went to Washington Square Park in New York every day. He got himself a post office box. He went to the park every day, and he told teenagers, I'm bringing the Beatles to Shea Stadium in August. And that cry went around the world. Mm -hmm. In three weeks, he finally had the courage to go to the P.O. box to see if he had any orders and they had bags and bags. They came out from the back of the post office to finally meet the guy who had this box. <laughs> they had bags and bags and bags of mail for him. And when he took it home, he and his wife were opening letters and uh, yen fell out of one envelope. Rubles fell out of another envelope. Uh, mon money came from behind the Iron Curtain, wow. you know, so at a time when there was only letter writing mm -hmm. and long distance phone calls, 
the news of the Beatles playing Shea Stadium went around the world. It was a network of teenagers. Yep. You know, and I thought, oh my, when I heard that part of the story, I thought, you know, obviously with the internet, nothing like this could ever happen again. You know, places sell out in 30 oh, yeah. minutes. Ask Taylor Swift. Right. You know? <laughs> Jeez. Um, but, you know, at a time where it was just teenagers writing to each other and making phone calls while their parents were we're in the background saying, get off the phone. It's a long distance. <laughs> you know, the beginnings of social they, media, <laughs> you know, it was just so fabulous. Yeah. You know, he was truly, Sid was truly the Pied Piper of rock and roll. Hmm. They followed him through the streets of New York. They camped out in front of his building. Um, you know, he was the one, the, the conduit, to uh, to rock, and now he was definitely the conduit to the Beatles, and um, they he took in over three hundred thousand dollars with that concert, uh, which again was the highest take of uh, in show business history to that point. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, and Sid, God love him, he could hear, he could recognize talent, you know, miles away, but he was lousy with numbers. He took home $3,000. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> you would think for something, you know, for something like that, he would have brought home, you know, buckets of money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Beatles were only promised a hundred grand of that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they they took home 160 grand and the rest of the money, you know, Sid I don't know what, you know, it's hard to know exactly what happened because hey, didn't he even have to advertise the concert? Right. Yeah. Jeez. You know, it was already sold out. Yeah. So Huh. That's weird. But have you ever had a chance to meet any of the Beatles? I have not. But you'd like to, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Heck yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I say in the introduction, um, one of my biggest regrets in life, I was, um, I lived in New York. Uh, it was, um, I guess, the spring of 74. It was the first beautiful spring day after a long winter, and my roommate and I went to Central Park, and there were just people all over out, uh, you know, and there were old men playing fiddles, and there were Puerto Ricans playing steel drum music, and it was just coming from every corner, and we went to the east, and and when we came back hordes of people were coming from the west and they said oh man john lennon was just playing in the park oh, wow <laughs> and i was like really really <laughs> so i went the wrong way that day and i i wonder what it would have been like to see him in an unprotected area like that mm -hmm. uh you know, just sitting cross-legged on the grass. Right. Uh, I think it probably would have changed my life because they were so untouchable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, my, but I blew that. Yeah, what, one of the things that I did get the opportunity, like I said, I've seen Paul many times, 
but I, we were at Paul McCartney's uh, waiting outside to get into the uh, stadium to see him. And somebody was going around there handing out tickets and we didn't know what it was for. And we said, you know, what's that for? And they said, here, you can have, have two tickets. I said, well, what is it for? And they said, it's for a concert tomorrow with a thousand people in the stadium and they're going to be filming to, you know, they film the concert, but then they film, you know, like other shots, I guess. And they needed a crowd of a thousand people down in the front and they would turn around and then edit it into the, the movie. Uh, it was for Paul's, I can't remember the, was it the get back his, his movie, his documentary movie. Okay. Remember that one? Yes. Anyways. So it was for that one. And, you know, you know, I, I called into work, said, okay, I'm not coming in tomorrow because <laughs> we're staying down here. <laughs> and uh, we got to see Paul in a very intimate, you know, oh, wow. for a thousand people, which, you know, sounds like a lot of people. But when you're in the stadium, you know, it's what, five rows, maybe, you know, people are standing by the stage. And he, you know, while they were setting up the cameras, they were turning around and, and he's playing around, just, you know, playing whatever. And, uh just wasting time. And it was like, you know, then people were leaving, you know, cause it, it, it's a long process. It's, I don't know if you, you know, you know, I'm sure a lot about TV shows and how things can be drag and everything. And uh, people were leaving and I'm thinking, you know, it was about four hours later and I'm there. Why are they leaving? You know, <laughs> I mean, we're here with Paul McCartney, you know, you, you know, you're close enough. You can spit on him if you want, you know, I mean, but, oh, wow. so that That's was really amazing. something. Yeah. That was, that was quite a thing, but uh Anyway, so uh, where can people get the book? Uh, uh, wherever books are sold um, and, uh, you know, always Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble and all those kinds of places. And if they want a signed copy, they can just write me at my website, lauriejacobson.com, and I'll be happy to sign a copy of it and send it out to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was just thinking with your story, I I did get to see the Beatles in 66. Really? Wow. And I saw um, George George touring in, uh, I think it was 74, um, which they refer to as the cocaine tour, when he was uh, experiencing a little vocal... uh, disruption due to um due to all the coke he was doing at that uh, time yeah. and of course i've seen paul and ringo almost every time they've toured so at least i did get to see them all in one place mm. and i wasn't a screamer you know i was a crier <laughs> <laughs> i just kind of knew this is it for me this is my moment with them and i want to hear everything yeah yeah jeez Hi, this is Dr. Demento, and you're listening to On Screen and Beyond. Now, we're going to switch gears a little bit here because okay. you've done so much other stuff, and I want to get get as much as I can in here. Now, uh, you started out as a comedian. Is this, this correct? Or stand-up comedian and improv? Is that right? Well, uh, yeah, I, I pursued an acting career, and I like to say that I was an excellent waitress during that time. 
and uh, and I did um, discover uh, the world of comedy improv uh, when I moved to L.A. I was in school in New York, and then I moved to L.A. and uh, I I very early on discovered a guy named Harvey Lembeck, and he had this great comedy workshop with these really funny undiscovered people named you know Robin Williams and John Ritter and <laughs> John La Roquette uh, living in his car wow <laughs> on Laurel Canyon Boulevard you know so it was a an amazing time i mean clearly we knew you know there was no doubt that robin was going to be you know, I I felt guilty writing people back at home and saying, "Keep your eyes peeled for a guy named Robin Williams." You know? <laughs> but um, yes, yes, and so many of those people came from the world of stand-up. So um, I did dabble in that for a while. Now, now, did you actually get to meet Harvey Lembeck? I mean, if people that might not know uh, by the name. Uh, he was a, he was a comedian. A lot of movies he was in. Uh, I remember him most for the beach. Uh, I don't know if it was Beach Blake and Bingo or, or one of those beach movies with Frankie and Annette. Uh, and he yes. was he was um, Eric von Zipper, right? You know, he now, was the leader of the motorcycle yes. gang and and all of them. And he said his he often said his friends made fun of him. Um, for doing that, but he said, I worked with Buster Keaton. I worked with, exactly. you know, amazing people on those films. So the hell with them. Yeah. Did you get to meet um, him? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He ran the workshop. Oh, he did. Okay. Well, I didn't know if it was, you know, like his name only. And you know, they had people that worked for him. I wasn't sure. No, and his friend, no, also his friends and his friends were, you know, Phil Foster and Gary Marshall and Hackett and, <laughs> You know, people like that were saying you can't teach comedy. You can't teach comedy, but you could. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you wow. could. We learned we learned a tremendous amount, and then his friends would come and work out with us. You know, Joey Bishop and Jack Lemon. Oh, it was wow. thrilling. It was a thrilling place to be. And um, for a while in my class, uh, Peter Noon. Yeah. From Hermit's Hermits, yes. Started working out with us because he had been an actor. Right. He was. I'm trying um, to think what uh, something a millionaire. Uh, he was in a movie. I can't remember. And I think I, he did soap opera stuff. Oh, really? In, um, I didn't know that. <laughs> in the UK, uh, you know, as oh, a the teen. UK. Yeah. And um, you know, and he and once he brought one of his friends to um, sit in on the class, and it was Dave Clark mm-hmm. of the Dave, Dave Clark, Clark Five. Five. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh my God! I thought this is just, you know, it was like '77. You know, I, uh, their albums were still hot on my stereo. You yeah. know, so it was it was really a, an incredible time and experience so yes so comedy improv was awesome yeah now you also uh, co-produced uh the mary tyler moore 20th anniversary show correct yes and how was it working i mean i i actually have had uh, a lot of the people who were on that gavin mcleod and of course he's passed but uh, and uh yes they all have really yeah yeah i think now uh, but i didn't have all Except of that for- ed asner i have had on valerie hopper 
And uh, I mean, just that, that was such an incredible show. And you must have been thrilled to work with those people. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Mary Tyler Moore, forget it. And uh, and everyone was so kind. First of all, they had not all been together as a group since the show had ended. And during that time, Ted Knight had passed away. So it it was a, a very emotional reunion for them to begin with. Sure. Um, and they were just at the top of their game, you know, so happy to be back together, um, you know, full of laughter and memories. And then, to, you know, and we had made these clip packages uh, with themes. And you know, when we played the Ted Knight clip package, uh, they were crying. I'm sure. Yeah. You know, so it was just, you know, Mary's bad dates, Mary's bad parties. Um <laughs> You know, everybody had their own uh, package of clips, and uh, and it was just so fun. But this is the story that I tell about um, about that weekend that we filmed. Um, Mary, of course, she brought the hat that she throws in the air, mm-hmm. yeah. and she brought the M that hung on the wall of her apartment through oh. the entire series. Yeah, and uh, her husband was there. And he was telling me that um, at one point Mary auctioned off the M for a charity she believed in, and he spent ten thousand dollars to purchase it back for her. Wow! So, and, and I'm thinking, wow, this is so amazing, right? So we have the M. Now we're down to the last shot of the show, which is Mary's goodbye. Everybody else in the cast has gone home. And she's in the dressing room getting ready for that uh, for that shoot, and the prop man dropped the M, Ooh. and it broke into like fifty pieces. And that was his last job, right, <laughs> on the show. I, you know, we just oh, you know, the whole set froze. And he is gathering up the pieces, this poor man, you know, and mm. running away, trying to glue it together. And he brings it back and he's re-spray painted it, but it looked like shit. Mm, okay. It looked terrible. And, and, you know, the director said, if we tell her, we might never get this last shot. She could break down into tears and, you know, mm-hmm. and so we have to we have to get this shot. So we're not going to tell her. So now everyone on the set is keeping this huge secret from Mary. Jeez. You know, we're all complicit. And um, she comes out and she wa- she's all bubbly and she walks to her spot and she sees the M and immediately knows mm-hmm. and turns on a dime and says, excuse me for a moment, please, and goes back into her dressing room. And now we're all just dying. What will happen? What will happen? And 20 minutes later, she came out, walked to her spot, and said, let's get that last shot. Wow. And she never asked what happened, who did it. You know, Mm. she was just a, a complete pro. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she could have, yes, had that guy blackballed, fired, mm-hmm. <laughs> fined, 
you know, and many others would have. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, accidents happen. It right. just oh, happened, yeah. happened to be with a memento of hers that meant a huge amount to her. And I just thought, wow, that was a great lesson yeah. in, in being a pro. And I, I never had the opportunity to get Cloris Leachman on the show here, but I've met Cloris several times, and uh, I just kept trying to get her on, but we couldn't get, couldn't arrange it. And then, of course, she's passed and everything. But uh, Cloris Leachman must have been—I don't know how she was when you were filming the show, but Cloris is a, was a handful. <laughs> yes, she was. She was a complete. Completely neurotic. Yeah. Oh, she was just crazy in a good way. And I mean that in a good way. <laughs> yes. You know, she, you know, and, and also I have to say Betty White was just beyond. Really? Uh, beyond kind, fabulous human being. Just so sweet. So funny. So damn funny. Uh-huh. You know, and, and everyone, really. Ed Asner was great. Um, mm-hmm. Gavin was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, Gavin um, had told me that uh, he had a fire at his house and he had lost all of his tapes of the show. Oh. And so I, I made, back then we were still on videotape, mm-hmm. um, I made tapes of all his, the shows that featured him. And uh, he was so grateful. <laughs> and years later, he's on a plane. And my dad was on the same plane. <laughs> so my dad, being a dad, uh, approaches him in his seat and says, you know, I'm Laurie's father. And immediately, years later, he goes, oh, my gosh, your daughter was so kind to make those videos for me. And So they were just real people, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, when real. I interviewed him, he was just so nice, uh, you know? Just, yes. Just such just a nice a- guy. A lot of heart. They they all ha- you can just see why it lasted. And and you know that last scene where they move as a group. Mm. You know, truly, truly. And you know, Cloris, Cloris was such a nut. She was just <laughs> such. A, you know, we John, my husband John Provost, who was mm-hmm. Timmy on Lassie, and Cloris played his mother on the show for half a season. Yes which most people don't recall, um, you know, we saw Cloris often at um, comic cons and autograph shows, and she, she was just a nut. Oh, yes. The woman was just a nut. <laughs> so much fun. <laughs> yes, yes, so funny and um, such an offbeat character and a just a brilliant actress. Yeah. A beautiful woman, too. Uh, yeah, she was she was great, but she she did get on the director's nerves during that shoot. I recall. I I, I can see why. I <laughs> I understand. She that. was very needy. She was yeah. very needy, where the others were not needy at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, Laurie, this has been so much fun. Uh, it's just this. You have so much knowledge and such great stories to tell that's why you're a historian that's a hollywood yeah. historian <laughs> and i you know i i would love to have you on again uh maybe around halloween or something if we could get you because you you know a lot about the haunted hollywood correct 
I do. And, you know, that was my most popular book, um, Hollywood Haunted. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just wrestled the rights away from uh, my publisher, and it's mine again. And they had cut many chapters uh, from the book originally. And so I'm putting all those chapters back in uh-huh. and I, I'm re-releasing it just a little bit later this year. Uh, the author's cut. Ah, okay. And now I want to get, get in here too, that, uh, you have re-released the, uh, Timmy's in the well, correct. With more yes. information and more pictures and things. Yes, uh, yes, my husband's autobiography. Uh, we just it, it just came out um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and it is has been updated to through Christmas of of twenty twenty two, with lots more photos, maybe uh, uh, maybe a hundred new photos. Wow. So um, yeah, so. It, we're really happy about that yeah, as well. You, you can't get any hotter off the press than that. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> up to date. That's for sure. Yeah, we're up to date. Yeah. So yeah, so it's it's been fun. So my net, yeah, I'm still working on Hollywood Haunted, and that that should be done in, in the next couple of months here. And um, I would love to talk to you about it at Halloween. Yeah, that would be you know a good time. I was thinking that that would be you know the appropriate time to get everybody in the mood and everything. Terrific. Well, thanks. And uh, now, Laurie, I want to finish up with one final question. Okay. And and it takes us away from all your books, which we'll get into more, uh, you know, the next time you're on with this, because there's other books too. I don't want to, you know, (laughs) stay away from those, but you've got a lot of other books too. Uh, And uh, taking us away from that in your Top of the Mountain, The Beatles at Shea Stadium, 1965, which is, everybody should go out and get. But um, when you sit back and relax, what are your favorite TV shows now and from when you were growing up in the past? And what are your favorite movies now and in, in the past? Oh, wow. You couldn't have emailed that to me to let me do a little <laughs> thinking about it. <laughs> Oh, that's that, that is so tough. And my favorite TV shows, I think I still watch them, you know. Mm-hmm. I love Dick Van Dyke. I love Cheers and Taxi. Um uh and my films, my favorite films. Uh Oh no. Like my mind has just gone blank. I know that's what you know? usually happens. But when you're flicking the channels or whatever, uh, going through the, the the streaming and all that stuff, or is there a movie that you might you know you've seen a hundred times, thousand times, but every time you see that it's there, you got to sit down and watch it again. Um, you know, it's not that old, um, but Tombstone. I feel that way about. Ah, yeah. It, it, if it's playing, uh, I will always watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking, where is that notebook I have with my favorite films written in it that I can't? <laughs> um, you know, oh, you know, it's oh, it's so hard. I mean, I, I feel cliche, of course, with Wizard of Oz mm, and yeah, yeah. Um, you know, most Hitchcock films. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Well, I'll tell you, I, Laura, when we talk again around thing, uh, not Thanksgiving, uh, Halloween, um, I always ask that as my final question. So you can think about it. <laughs> okay. I'll be better prepared. Okay. I promise. No problem. Yeah. Well, Laurie, I thank you so much for joining us and sharing. Your stories are great, and uh, it's so so good to hear those things. And uh, I want to remind people once one more time that your latest book is out, and it is called Top of the Mountain, The Beatles at Shea Stadium, 1965. And they should go out and get that, or like you say, go to your uh, website, and they can get it autographed and uh, get a book there. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all those places. I will be at the Beetle Fest in New Jersey at the end of the month. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that. And, uh, you know, it's just been it's just been a fab, fab trip. <laughs> And a big thank you going out to Lori Jacobson for joining us here at On Screen and Beyond. Uh, fascinating things that she uh, had done. And of course, if you are a Beatles fan, you don't want to miss her latest book, Top of the Mountain, The Beatles at Shea Stadium, 1965. So be sure to check that out. It's available on Amazon and all the other places that you can get books. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating, you know, if you, like you say, if you're a Beatles fan, it's, it's something you want. And uh, once again, I want to remind you about the Golden Girls uh, tribute con convention uh, coming up called Behind the Golden Curtain on May 26th to the 28th at the Rinda Theater. It's a tribute to the Golden Girls TV show with all kinds of the writers and directors and producers of the show and people who guest starred on the show. Uh, they're going to have all kinds of fun things going on. Very similar to uh, you know what went on at the uh, last one they had for the Land of the Lost, and uh, that was a great time if you were there, but uh, this one's going to be King on the Golden Girls, so behind the Golden Curtain, be sure to check that out May 26th to the 28th. And that's it. That's a wrap for this episode of On Screen and Beyond, so until next time, when we once again take you on screen and beyond, I'm Brian Simrack. Take care. (laughs) 